Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Crazy Ezekiel's Tutorial Emporium. Crazy Ezekiel's Tutorial Emporium. Do you like tank memes? Do you want to learn to play tough strategy games? Need help picking up chicks? Ha! Good luck with that last one, but we can teach you to play Kenshi, Imperator Rome, even Victoria 2, and more. Find it all at youtube.com slash callmeezekiel. That's youtube.com slash callmeezekiel. Watch, like, comment, and subscribe before the bomb on my chest explodes! Greetings, comrades. As you heard in the last not-so-serious episode, I was back in Germany, again in Berlin, an awesome city by the way. That allowed me to pick up more materials about the wondrous little brother of the Soviets, the GDR. The books that the DDR Ministry of State Security Research Foundation release are just wonderful in my opinion. And again, as usual, always, Stasi is involved everywhere. Last time, when I covered this subject. I spoke about the technical means of how they operated, what were their differences from the KGB, and such. But this time, I would like to give you some everyday life aspects on how Stasi operated and how that impacted life in the GDR as a result. As well as some stories, personal stories, from German scientists who had to interact with Stasi in one way or another. Oh, those scientist studies, by the way, come from the Science History Foundation, which is a website that I highly recommend that you visit and read from it, because it has many nice studies about science history. They're not our sponsors by any means, but I just like when exact and humanitarian side combines, so that we can learn from it. But yeah, since the revolution of 1989, which led to the opening of Stasi Files, and a long, more than 25 years long debate about the history of GDR, people have often criticized that the Ministry of State Security has been retrospectively demonized and mythologized. The reasons for this are varied and complex, and include the dictatorship and uh, the apologetics for State Security Ministry, and the legitimate demand for the history of the Ministry of State Security to be treated as an integral part of research, of the communist dictatorship. It is also an expression of the wish that more emphasis be put on the role of the leadership of the party and that analysis of the Ministry of State Security be conducted within the larger uh, social-political context. 
This obviously covers a very broad spectrum, but it does not mean that the claim that the, this Stasi has been demonized and mythologized since 1990 is correct. In fact, before the Ministry of State Security was dissolved, it had intentionally participated in demonizing and mythologizing its own activities as a part of a ruling principle based on the spread of fear, intimidation, and, you know, general repression of individualism. Same as the KGB. It was kind of this atmosphere of fear that lingered in the air at all times, so that you couldn't trust anyone and be always afraid. Fear kept people in check. The Ministry of State Security was present in every phase of GDR history, although most people were not aware of how it operated. Well, the same as with the KGB, again. And uh, due to the lack of resources, reliable sources about information in that era, very little was known about Stasi at that period. It was, however, still feared a lot by people in literally every social circle possible. It is thus not surprising that calls to abolish the Ministry of State Security were voiced by opposition and resistance groups as early as the 1950s. The ongoing wish was also expressed many times in autumn 1989. For example, one of the slogans, Stasi into the factories, in front of the Ministry of State Security offices at kind of these beginning demonstrations in October of 1989, and finally, in the early December 1989, when these offices were occupied and then the ministry, as we know, eventually dissolved. Many people believe and say that they never had any personal contact with the Ministry of State Security, that it was neither visible nor noticeable, and that it had not played any role in their everyday lives. It's kind of difficult to argue against personal memories, you know. They were present, but you didn't know about it. And also, as I have noticed on my show, you know, people's memories of the past are often weirded out and distorted and crushed and changed by years of forgetting. Conscious or unconscious repression, overestimations, biases, underestimations, their current experiences, their foreign experiences, images, media, movies, and, well, basically by, by knowledge that they gain. It's kind of interesting because when you look at this period, both in East Germany... And also, in the Soviet Union, you have to understand that a lot of times these experiences are shifted, therefore I'm mostly using them as representations of zeitgeist, of things that, even though didn't happen as 100% as people tell me, they still represent things that could have happened easily, and I'm pretty sure that most of them did happen in fact. It's kind of this uh, saying, quite ironic one, the only statistics you can trust are those you falsified yourself. And I guess, I guess you could apply this in a bit of a changed aspect in a way to your memory. The search for the evidence of the Ministry of State Security in the everyday past lives of the GDR citizens leads researchers astray because almost every individual example demands a counterexample. For instance, most people living in the GDR were very careful about what they said on the telephone. They lowered their voices to a whisper when they discussed certain subjects in public. That, almost every telephone conversation was tapped, is part of a certain GDR traveling myth. This example is easily countered out by pointing that most people in the GDR did not even have telephones. And yes, because of this lack of telephones, not only in the GDR, but also in the Soviet Union, because they were in workplaces, but not nearly every house had a telephone. My own household had to wait in line for years to get one, so if KGB would rely on tapping phones, that would just not work. And the same thing is true about the Stasi and the GDR. And although this is true, the fact that most people did not have these phone numbers, it is also true 
that almost everyone made telephone calls. At relatives, friends, from payphones, or, well, most commonly, from their workplaces. And many people assumed, either consciously or unconsciously, that the state security was obviously <laughs> listening in on all the conversations and tapping them. Today, we know for a fact that the secret police were not capable of recording or listening to every telephone call. But it's the image in your mind that matters sometimes. It's the image and the perception of things that sometimes determines reality. This mind over matter thing, yeah. <laughs> the Soviets and, uh, to an extension, Stasis were very competent at that. Because you see, before 1989, it was generally assumed that the ministry could tap to every phone call. Similar assumptions about the Stasi at the time helped kind of illustrate how it was mythologized and demonstrate how the belief that it was omnipresent had an impact on everyday life. Students, for example, assumed that in every seminar group there were at least two informers. This was, by the way, completely and utterly true and in the Soviet Union. There were at least one, someone working with the KGB in any kind of a seminar or course. Conscripts were certain that at least one informer lived in each barrack. When non-conformist teenagers met, most of them assumed there was an informer among them. This guy still looked like them. Kind of a specially evil act. There are infinite, infinite number of examples to illustrate how people presumed the Ministry of State Security was everywhere and how they accepted this as a part of their life. And these studies are, even though similar to the KGB and the attitude towards them in the Soviet Union, but there are some differences. After all, East Germany was viewed as, strangely enough, more tightly controlled, more efficiently run, not as blatant and brutal, but more operating with a scalpel towards its oppression, rather than the Soviets' just, you know, bluntness. But yeah, let us now discuss these kind of issues and differences, and how actually, you know, language reflected this assumption within the society that the state security was a part of, you know, everyday life and thoughts. You see, this would also involve jokes. I haven't had those in a while in the show now, have I? The name Ministry for State Security was rarely used and never in private conversations. The ministry, as we know, was just referred to Stasi, or, you know, the firm. Listen and look, listen and grab, as well as the Red Gestapo, the pack, or Milkes Thugs. Almost nobody outside of the Ministry of State Security knew that informers were called unofficial collaborators. But everyone had at least heard or knew that there were many people acting in secret and that recognized as spies, agents, traitors, or just swine, spying on society for the state security. Several popular jokes from that time also show that most people were aware that the Ministry of State Security was out there watching, monitoring, and, when necessary, persecuting its own population. The following joke is a good example of how no one could feel safe from the secret police. Quote, a man in the bar says to the man at the next table, Do you know what the difference is between this beer and the party? Uh, no. What? This beer is fluid, the party is superfluous. In German, the pun is from flüssig, which is liquid, and überflüssig, which is, you know, superfluous. They kind of sound similar. And then the man identifies himself as a Stasi informer, the other man goes to prison. When he gets out a few years later, he sees the same Stasi informer in the bar again and gets asked, well, let's see if you had time to reflect on your crime while in jail, and whether you have developed your socialist character. Now tell me, what's the difference between Erich Hönecker and a billy goat? The man's obviously startled and responds, oh no 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 no, this time I'm not seeing any differences. Jokes also address the fact that the state security allegedly intercepted postal correspondences and telephone conversations. For example, another one, quote, 
In a letter from the GDR to the Federal Republic of Germany, your package has arrived. Hand grenades and machine guns have been buried in the garden. The second letter arrives the next week. The state security was here. The garden has been dug up. You can send the tulip bulbs now. This is a similar joke from the KGB jokes, but it's interesting how they kind of adapt and kind of shows the close, tight connection that the Soviets had, because the same thing was also said about the KGB and either originated in Odessa, and it's a similar joke, but still, this is a version of the same joke, just about the Stasi. These kinds of jokes also kind of function on different levels, too. Because one thing that you notice in the last example, this last joke, why this digging up a garden, the Soviet version of this joke, it's not about sending a second letter for the packages, it's about that your grandma is just complaining that she's alone and in her countryside and her private garden just, you know, needs digging up so that she can plant things. But here, here in the GDR version of the joke, the attention is specifically drawn to the fact that there's a lack of supply of goods in the GDR. The fact that, you know, there are no tulips. Which means that um, people in the GDR, when, you know, they, they lived way less under communism than we in the Soviet Union. So they still had this memory of earlier days before the war where stuff was more available. They were more in the West, so they had, like, more contact with people who had more stuff. And even though we, as the Soviets, looked at them and already saw that, hey, East German stuff was considered the good one. Several jokes allude to the state security's bad standing in society and its unpopularity. One popular joke went like this, quote, Mielke is driving through the countryside with his chauffeur when the chicken suddenly leaps out in front of the car and is run over. Mielke gets out and goes to the farmer. After a while, he returns downcast, gets back in the car, and tells the chauffeur to drive on. A little bit later, they run over a pig. Mielke has had enough. This time he sends his driver in. The driver returns heaps with presents. Mielke asks him how he did it. The driver answers, Well, you know, I just went in and said that I am Milka's driver and that I just ran over the swine. Finally, many jokes like these two final examples show that people would not put anything past Milka and his comrades. Many assume that the functionaries and the Ministry of State Security employees were not very bright. (laughs) Similar thing about the KGB with a classic joke about, you know, why KGB agents always walk around in groups of three. One to read, one to write, and the third one to watch over the other two intellectuals. But yeah, this specific GDR joke goes like this, quote, Mielke and Stoff, well, high-ranking officers there. Uh, if you want to know who Mielke and Stoff was, that's in my previous uh, Stasi episode. Mielke and Stoff are traveling incognito to Paris by train to check out the atmosphere in the French capital in preparation of Hönecker's visit there. They return to Hönecker really worried. Mielke says to Hönecker, They exposed our cover as soon as we got to the train station. Hönecker asks with surprise, how, how could you tell? Well, when we got off the train, everyone started calling out, baggage, baggage. And uh, apparently, this is funny because in French, I was told, the word for baggage is also used in German to mean, you know, rabble and riffraff. Another joke deals with the brutality of state security. Quote, Mielke goes hunting, but all he catches is a rabbit. Angered by his failure, he punches the rabbit yelling over and over. Come on. Admit that you're a wild boar. This is one of those um, occasions where the series of the jokes where, you know, when someone like three secret agencies are sent into the forest to catch a bear who's like, you know, killed someone, 
the usually the like CIA goes and does it with like technical means, and then the British Secret Service just you know manages to, to find a lot of information in some some intelligent way, and the KGB just basically grabs the rabbit, punches him, and, and states that you know he confessed that that's a bear or something. It's one of those lines, but again, I have to state that these jokes are a bit more subtle than what we had in the Soviet era. And yeah, people did found these jokes funny. Well, obviously, political jokes are abound in such systems. And similarly to the Soviet Union, the humor helped them when their frustration. But again, similarly to the Soviet Union, reflected their own experiences, perceptions, assumptions, and, well, as usual with every communist regime, their own fears. But even though the state government wanted to push through this fear, the state security ministry, or the KGB in the Soviet case, there's a reason why my show is called Happiness is Mandatory. Because in this atmosphere of fear, the government wants you to pretend to be happy, but the form of resistance is the, like the last thing that you can do is actually be happy, be really happy about your own little things. So, people didn't live in constant fear, and they didn't constantly look to the left and right before, you know, walking down the street. Everyday life, after all, is a bit about habituation, acceptance, routine. And over time, the system refined its techniques of power maintenance and the brutality of the 1950s, the brutality that kind of remained also in the Soviet Union when, when Stalin was alive and a bit after that, because KGB was known for the brutality. Yeah, in DDR, it gave way to kind of a more subtle method of intimidation. This was obviously only possible after the Berlin Wall was erected and the people understood that it was only possible to leave the country at great risk and without the possibility to return. This recognition increased the stress within society and the people's willingness to conform to the situation while allowing the rulers to develop a less obvious strategy of repression. The same happened in the Soviet Union, except, you know, Berlin had its Berlin Wall, Soviet Union's borders as such, you can quite much compare them to this Berlin Wall, just on a grander scale, after all the Soviet Union was the only country on the planet Earth where its border guards had artillery regiments, and those were pointed inwards. Society was based on the assumption that the state security was ubiquitous, and that the people were left without room for private niches. It was like the German fairy tale about the rabbit and the hedgehog. No matter what the rabbit did, the hedgehog seemed always to beat him to it. Today, we know that although the state security had a broad presence, the belief that it was everywhere greatly exaggerates the truth. This misconception, however, reveals not only that the Ministry of State Security was viewed as an integral part of the ruling apparatus, it also shows how integral it was to social and often individual developments. The state security itself primarily contributed to this. The SED and the secret police, the functionaries and the Stasi employees pretended to know everything and that what they did not know, they could find out. That they had total control. Here is an example that related to almost everyone in the GDR as they got older. The catered departments in the factories and institutions maintained employee files on every worker. These files accompanied the workers their entire lives. Even in the GDR, a person had the option to view these files on request. One had to register with the catered department and was given an appointment a few days later. It was generally assumed that the department head needed the delay to have time to remove documents from the file that the employee was not supposed to see. This made sense since it was also generally believed that the catered department operated as an extended branch of the state security. Most people believed that there were actually two files, one that you were allowed to see, and one, the important one, which remained inaccessible. Consequently, very few people bothered to look at their employee file, since they wouldn't be allowed to see what was important and meaningful. Most people also assumed 
that the state security had the final word when it came to cater-related political decisions, such as an acceptance to university, professional promotions, or trips to the West. Which was very much true in the Soviet Union and the KGB. However, in the case of the DDR, today we know that the situation was actually much more complicated in East Germany. The state security was often, but not always, involved in such decisions, and it was not uncommon for the SCD and the state leadership to overrule rejections from the Ministry of State Security. But these widespread beliefs show that the state security played an established role in the people's everyday thinking, and that its real or presumed omnipresence led to a spiral of sheer endless speculation and fear, again, quite like over here. There were, however, three groups of people whose daily lives were directly affected by the state security in a very special way. The first group consisted of the employees, these unofficial helpers, and functionaries. The latter group might have included thousands, perhaps even millions of people, who were connected to the state security professionally, politically, or unofficially, and had a regular contact with it. Another group, not identical with the first, though, consisted of people who were disappointed by this real-life socialism, and who saw the secret police as the keepers of the grail upholding the communist idea. They hoped that this apparatus would initiate decisive reforms. This group had always existed in the GDR, and at the end, in 1989, some of its members were counting on Markus Wolf to save the GDR. A third group, yet completely different from the first two, was made up of people in the political opposition. Refugees, people who had applied to emigrate, and those who were a political or social nuisance to the regime, or had drawn the attention of the secret police through their non-conformist behavior. Their perception of the state security was based not on presumptions and rumors, but on personal experience. Their everyday lives really were often strongly altered by these encounters with the Stasi, and this is why we're going to get to these scientist studies, because obviously scientists were in the group where Stasi would primarily control them. But yeah, sadly, sadly, as far as I know, little historical research has been conducted on the role of the Stasi in GDR everyday life. And I think that I will try to explore this subject even more and try to compare and contrast it. Because that's what I've been doing here at the KGB, but so far, at least in the books that I read, and the materials that I read, well, apparently, in the documents provided by the state security from their own research center, no attention almost have been paid to how people's thinking their mentalities were affected by the state security, about the mind, or long-term consequences, or presumptions, or about their experiences. But all of this continued to exist to the present, you see. That is what we over here call the post-Soviet mentality, and that is what I try to convey. Which is interesting, because this is not an academical document, after all. I'm not an academician in the traditional sense, and, you know, I can't just go around publishing my scripts and everything. But, uh, but yeah, definitely it, it's essential to understand that both in East Germany and in the post-Soviet sphere in general, and especially the ex-Soviet countries, such as my own, this role of secret state security must always be taken into this consideration. As I mentioned in the Gulag series, The Gulag Within You, is how I would call it, this uh, internalization of the fear. Also, one thing is that the role of the Ministry of State Security in East Germany should never be trivialized or minimized, as former SED functionaries, state security officers, and those informants tend to do up until today. The truth lies somewhere that's not in the middle, and it is not stored away in the Stasi files or in people's memory. A general truth there about everyday life, something that would be more than these people's stories that I try to give you, does not exist about the GDR, because everyday life is based on individual experience. But, again, you could always, always attempt to reconstruct something through 
professional social and historical studies, and if any will, any will pop up and appear, I shall return to this once again. But as these studies are important, I want to bring you some. Some from the scientists who worked there, and of the people who were very personally involved, because they had to be. After all, no scientist in the communist regime could be not affiliated somehow with these, you know, data and everything that they had on them. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for another episode of The Eastern Border. As you might know if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Discord, our show is growing. If you haven't already, this is the perfect time to join our community, as we will soon be delivering exclusive stories from Ukraine and give you an in-depth analysis of what is going on over there. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash the eastern border. A big thanks to all of those who are already donating the show would not be possible without you guys. That's it from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One extremely important thing to note about the collapse of the Berlin Wall is that the movement began not only east to west, but west to east. And it happened so suddenly. I will remind you that on the 9th of November 1989, things changed when Shabowski responded randomly to a question, well, how could this opening of, of border posts could happen? And he answered just so forth, immediately. And uh, as everyone happened to be there, and that spread, he had no time to explain. The floodgate was open, and um, the flood of people that spread to the West, and the subsequent reunification of Germany, had a massive impact on the scientists in the former GDR. As teams of West German scientists traveled to the East to evaluate which institutes would remain open, and which would be closed, thousands of former GDR scientists lost their jobs. Money flooded into the East, meant to build dozens of shiny new institutes indistinguishable from their Western counterparts. Some of these new institutes hosted researchers who worked in the former GDR, but many, many were led by the West German or international scientists. Germans themselves referred to this entire transformation, from the Berlin's Wall's collapse to German unification with a gentle euphemism, Die Wende, or the changeover. This uh, word kind of embodies the massive changes that occurred after the wall came down, including opening the Stasi's huge archives to the public. By the way, archive opening recently, just very recently happened here, because it's a problem in all 
post-Soviet countries who had their own secret services. So now, I'm gonna bring you some stories from the scientists taken from the science history, the dog, where they have gladly, you know, got them, because these I would probably never been able to obtain otherwise. Uwe Rosenthal, age 39, on November 9, 1989. The Stasi's codename for me was Nickel, because I worked with Nickel Catalysts. After the wall came down, Rosenthal requested the hundreds of pages of Stasi surveillance files collected on him in an effort to make sense of the difficulties he had experienced in the years before the changeover. In 1989, with a PhD and a nearly completed German habilitation, then a prerequisite for an academic career in science, Rosenthal's career should have been on an upward trajectory. Unfortunately for Rosenthal, his PhD advisor had fled the GDR the previous year after receiving a travel visa to attend a family birthday party. The Stasi believed he was selling research secrets to the West, says Rosenthal, adding that the idea was preposterous. In reality, his advisor had just wanted freedom unavailable in the GDR. I was totally rattled, Rosenthal says at the time after his advisor's escape. I was under complete surveillance. Left in limbo, Rosenthal was deemed by the Stasi to be a security risk, and thus unsuitable for a scientific career. Among the mass of very detailed, sometimes banal, Stasi reports on his daily life, Rosenthal says he came across evidence that the spy agency's surveillance extended into West Germany, which is obvious if you read from Soviet era sources too. But furthering on from the study. Case in point, a copy of an internal letter written by Rosenthal's former PhD advisor to the director of his new research institute in Mülheim-Ruhr, inquiring whether a position could be made available for Rosenthal in the event of his leaving the GDR. The well-intentioned and seemingly safe inquiry backfired for Rosenthal. The Stasi obviously got wind of it, which led to even more problems for him. Rosenthal now knows the Stasi heard about this letter through Communist Party member researchers who had received permission to tour the institute in Mülheim and who had found a way to riffle through the office of his former supervisor. Luckily for Rosenthal, his impossible situation came to an end a year later in 1989. Soon after the wall collapsed, he left to join his former advisor at the Max Planck Institute for Coal Research in Mülheim-Ruhr. The following year, Rosenthal returned to the Old East for a new job, leading a research department at the same institute where he had initially been blacklisted. His current circumstances would have never been possible behind the wall, Rosenthal says. Christoph Naumann, age 19, on November 9, 1989. Christoph Naumann knew he wanted to study chemistry at the university, but could not stomach the mandatory military service for a regime he loathed. So in August 1989, just weeks before the start of the protests that would eventually bring down the wall, Naumann decided to escape by traveling to Hungary, and then walking over the border to Yugoslavia. Border guards were suspicious of Jan Meng traveling alone. Many had tried escaping the GDR this way, so Naumann's sister went with him on the train to Hungary, though in a different coach, hiding in her underwear the 40 Deutschmarks in cash that would start his new life in the West. Naumann also had help from a train conductor, who smuggled his academic records across the border. Some 20 years after he escaped from the GDR, during which he worked or studied as a chemist in France, Canada, England and Australia, Naumann moved back to Berlin. Apparently, he now lives a short walk from the Bornhormel Bridge, a former crossing between East and West where the first crowds crossed to the West on November 9. Beate Koch, age 21, on the same date, November 9, 1989. Many young adults struggle with choosing a career, but Beate Koch always knew she wanted to be a biochemist. In 1985, 17-year-old Koch figured that her top marks in science made her a shoo-in for a university biochemistry program. Then, one day, as graduation approached, her school principal announced in front of her classmates that Koch has been denied entry to biochemistry programs. 
and extremely upset and confused Cox faced more unpleasant surprises. An hour later, she was called to the principal's office and found a Stasi operative waiting for her. Cox says he started by mentioning her failure to get the spot at the university. In the next breath, he invited her to study at the university that trained Stasi agents. Her failure to get into a biochemistry program had likely been a Stasi recruitment ruse. It was awful to have the Stasi ask you to join them, Cox says. I thought, why me? Have I been too good? To think that they saw me as a good candidate made me feel sick. At the same time, Cox knew that she couldn't out and out refuse the Stasi agent's invitation for fear of seeming rebellious or disloyal to the regime, which could severely hurt her family's career prospects as well as her own. I said I need to speak to my father and will give an answer tomorrow. That night was not a pleasant one in her household as the family brainstormed for a way out of the predicament. In the end, Cox decided on the sequence of watery excuses for refusing the Stasi offer, such as she was thinking of getting married and settling down with someone who had many family members in the West, contacts the Stasi would not approve of or permit. Other excuse involved her thinking processes. She was completely right-brained and too inept for the left-brain thinking required for social sciences. Luckily for Cox, the Stasi believed her story. The following year, she reapplied to the chemistry program at the Technical University at in Leuna Merserburg and was accepted. Today, she's a professor of organic and natural products chemistry at the Free University in Berlin. Joachim Zauer, age 40, on November 9, 1989. Many GDR scientists needed only 1.5 grams for promotion to senior scientist or professor, says Joachim Zauer, now a computational chemist at Humboldt University in Berlin. This was the weight of the Communist Party pin. Before the wall fell, joining the Communist Party was an essential step for career advancement. For Zauer and other scientists who didn't have the political stamp of approval, permanent postdoc-level positions were the most they could hope for. They also had to avoid making any provocative or critical statements about the Communist Party. Even so, Zauer says, staying quiet and keeping to yourself was not always enough. For example, late on the Friday afternoon in 1986, Zauer recalls the arrival of an unexpected guest in his office in the Institute of Chemistry in East Berlin. The Institute's Communist Party secretary showed up to request, in reality to obviously demand, an opinion essay about a recent Communist Party Congress, a demand completely unrelated to Zauer's work as a theoretical chemist. The essay, Zauer was told, would be posted on the Institute's notice board for all to read. It was a catch-22, as it was always with secret services, especially, you know, in the Soviet era, and with all these Soviet-affiliated countries. If you were to write what you think, you were in trouble, says Sauer. If you were to write what they wanted you to write, then you would deny yourself. The same situation happened with the censorship episode that I made, if you hadn't listened to that one. It's a catch-22 about what to write, what not to write, what let through, what not let through. Sauer spent a stressful weekend searching for a solution to the impossible conundrum. In the end, he says that what he wrote was okay on the surface, but had a double meaning. Small hammer that gave a message. Even in East Germany, in all these post-Soviet countries, again like in the censorship episode, you had to read through the lines. That's an important quality to learn, because you had to juggle things. You had to always, always stay on the edge if you were in such an important position, such as leading an institute. Zauer says the experience seems almost funny now, but not then. The essay was posted for only a few hours before officials decided to remove it. Living behind the Berlin Wall was not just personally stressful, but also professionally frustrating. By the 1980s, the GDR's economic problems combined with Western embargoes meant research equipment was often outdated. As a computational chemist, Zauer says it was frustrating to be stuck behind the wall just as VAX computers were shrinking from building size to room size. But sometimes equipment was unofficially available. The GDR regularly smuggled it in from the West, 
they smuggled in all sorts of things, from exotic fruit to medical equipment. For example, Zauer says his research institute had managed to get embargoed computers via Austria, a fact that the institute's administrators tried to keep secret by keeping the machines in a locked room and placing the terminals in another room, one open to the scientists. Zauer says he and his fellow scientists were skilled enough to extract the system information and so learn the computer's origin. After the wall came down, Zauer went to work for a software company in San Diego before being recruited back to Germany. A few years later, he was awarded a professorship at Berlin's Humboldt University. Zauer continues his quantum computational research, with brief breaks to entertain international heads of state with his wife, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Zauer's new workspace is in a recently renovated lab on Humboldt University's Aldershof campus, where the GDR's Institute of Chemistry used to sit, just across from a former Stasi military barracks. Heinz Mustroff, age 38, on November 9, 1989. India's flamboyant Bollywood film industry may seem worlds apart from the factories of communist East Germany, but business made them bedfellows. Before 1989, Heinz Mustorf worked as a chemist for Filmfabrik Wolfen, a government-owned company that supplied color film to primarily Bollywood clients. After the Berlin Wall collapsed, workers at the film company tried to keep business alive, but clients forced to pay in more expensive West German Deutschmarks, and soon went elsewhere. The color film company, like many businesses in the East, couldn't stay afloat. Without a job, Mustorf partnered with some former colleagues to start a contract research company that in 1997 morphed into FEW Chemicals, a manufacturer of specialized dyes also based in Wolfen. Mustorf was in his late 30s when the Berlin Wall fell, young enough to adapt to the new political and economical realities, even though the adjustment was not always smooth. Although I worked much harder in the years after the wall came down than before, life is better for me now. Now, if someone wants to try something new with their lives, they make their own limits, he says, instead of being dictated by the government. And finally, Gunther Fischer, age 46, on November 9, 1989. The GDR is decaying equipment, and a lack of basic research supplies meant scientists didn't have the resources to do science, but they did have plenty of time to sit in their offices and think, says Gunther Fischer. As a biochemist at Martin Luther University in Halle during the late 1980s, Fischer used his free time to think about proteins, how proteins fold. He came up with two theoretical ideas that garnered the GDR scientist rare Nature papers in 1987 and 1989, publications he acquired without asking for or receiving the necessary consent from Stasi or his university administration. At the time, getting a paper published in a high-profile Western scientific journal generally required East Germans to collaborate with a Western scientist. Another taboo, says Fischer, obviously. All professional contacts between Eastern and Western scientists had to be sanctioned and mediated by the Bureau of Internal Relationships. Fischer says it was frustrating to work with this Bureau. If I wanted to write a letter to a United States or Italian scientist, I could not do it directly. It had to go through the Bureau. But if you didn't hear a reply, you didn't know if the Bureau had even sent the letter, or whether a response had been received, or whether it had been thrown into the wastebasket. Typically, contact with the Western scientists was only possible by traveling to conferences in Poland or Hungary, where rules about international interactions were laxer than in the GDR. However, for the last 300 years, Fischer's hometown had been the headquarters of the Leopoldina, a scientific academy. Even during the years under the GDR regime, it was able to host scientists from the West. There, Fischer met Frank Schmidt, a biochemist at the University of Regensburg, in then West Germany, who visited the Leopoldina once or twice a year. Schmidt helped Fischer get his work published in Nature, and he repeatedly made official requests for Fischer to give a talk in Regensburg. 
Fischer also received many invitations from the scientific community in the United Kingdom, but as late as September 1989, he was denied a travel visa. Fischer says his Stasi files state that these refusals were because he was not a party member. Quote, and because I wasn't convinced that the communist system was best, and thus I wouldn't give a good impression about the GDR to the hosts. Somehow, the Stasi never realized that Fischer had published in Nature. In those years, I guess, the Stasi had other problems. Or maybe they were behind in their reading of journals. Fischer was finally granted a travel visa in November 1989, and was in Bayreuth, West Germany, when he heard that the wall had come down. I could barely believe it. I thought I had to accept that I would spend my whole life in the GDR. Fischer had a wife and children in the East, never considered escaping. Fischer is currently the director of the Max Planck Research Unit for the Enzymology of Protein Folding, the only director at one of the 80-plus institutes in the Max Planck Society who had worked as a scientist in the former GDR. And I'd like to finish this episode with another story. This uh, comes from Der Spiegel. This is written by Sarah Karatz in Berlin back in 2009. That was crazy, but it still kind of applies to this episode. She writes in her article about the banalities and betrayals of life in East Germany, which you have heard, the ordinary, newest research, the scientist studies, but there are options there. Also, relating to this side guy stuff, how everything worked. I'm using her material here because that's one that was available for me, and shows that sometimes it could get, like, really banal, even for more people who were not scientists. You see, a West German pudding, that was all it took. Once the Stasi found out about it, the family breadwinner was fired from his army job, and an East German household was plunged into destitution. Even worse, the family later found out that they had been turned in by a close friend. She was watering the plants and went through the cupboards to find a Dr. Oetker Dessert. Vera Iburg, who has worked with files kept by the East German secret police for the last 20 years, told Spiegel Online, again, this article is from 2009, referring to the snoop. What was she doing? She had no business there. See, interestingly enough, Iburg says it is the personal, much more banal stories that keep her her up at night, not the famous ones that make it into movies or anything. Iburg now has the emotionally draining task of sitting with people as they read their files. And with Germany now, at that point in 2009, celebrating two decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, she has had a lot more work to do than usual this year, well, 2009 again, as ever-increasing numbers take an interest in what the Stasi knows about them. Eberg's West German pudding study is by no means the only example of how mundane everyday events were picked up by the Stasi and used to change the course of people's lives. Some suspicious activities were nothing more than simple misunderstandings. One file tells of a man subjected to close surveillance at the Leipzig Convention Hall because the agent monitoring him didn't understand what he meant by checking his mailbox. The official was unaware of the English term and reported it as mailbox, a box of flour. One tragic story that came to light was that of East German parents, who, when attempting to escape to the West, gave their child sleeping pills. The Stasi files report the child died as a result. Herbert Ziem, who, in 2009 at least, headed up the Department of Requests for the Birthler Authority, which manages the Stasi files, said that these German spooks also took notes on details that smacked of bourgeoisie. Ziem, an East German, told, again, Spiegel, that a look into his own file revealed that the Stasi were very intrigued as to why my wife could drive and had a car, even though she was a housewife. He added, They were also fascinated by the fact that we were teetotalers and non-smokers. Well, after this many years, you can still laugh at the absurdity of it all. You always have to remember that people were getting arrested for the tiniest things. The brutal nature of each German regime means that any celebrations 
to kind of the fall of the Berlin Wall will always be tinged with melancholy. Dozens tried while trying to cross the barrier which divided Berlin and Germany in two, while the Stasi squelched all protest. Zim says that, with attention focused on reunification, many, from the former East, are revisiting the past in a much more personal fashion. And, again, from 2009, <clears throat> in the last year, tens of thousands of people have headed to the Berthler Authority to finally take a look at what their Stasi files contain. Interest has been so high, in fact, the waiting list is now two years long. The files, which occupy over 100 kilometers of shelf space, not including the 16,000 stacks of shredded documents the Berthler Authority is currently trying to reassemble with the aid of computers, and, well, I presume they've made a lot of progress in these 10 years, are a testament to a darker side of humanity. And Zim says that films like The Lives of Others, which indicate that many were coerced into spying on friends and neighbors, don't even come close to plumping the deaths that some ultimately fall to. Friends informed voluntarily on friends and spouses, even titled on each other. More often than not, the Stasi did not need to apply pressure at all, he says. In fact, many often felt snubbed if their information was deemed to be of no interest. The real motivation behind these acts of betrayal was often much more humdrum than one might think. People informed for personal gain, out of loyalty to the East German regime, or simply because they wanted to feel like they had some power, Zim says. Not all who visit the Berthler Authority come away feeling betrayed. The Stasi did not, as we learned, keep information on all these Germans, they just pretended that they did. Indeed, says Zim, up to 50% of the people who apply to see their files find that there isn't one. Though it means that friends and family remain loyal, many are disappointed. People want to blame not getting a job and other problems on having been informed on when this isn't always the case. Sometimes, not having a file can lead people to question the role they played in East Germany. But it's the files that actually exist which cause Iburg the most discomfort. Every day, she sees firsthand how difficult it is for people to learn that someone close has spied on them, and she's shocked by the depths to which ordinary people are willing to stoop. It's terrible. It makes you despair the malicious lies people would tell and at the weakness of human nature. Indeed, Eburg says, she feels personally haunted. The stories are always in the back of my head, whether I'm lying in bed or out in social situations. I find it hard to trust people. Yeah, trusting people. That is one thing that um, I'm trying to teach people to do on my Latvian show, and that would probably be the major cultural difference. This is where this mistrust comes from, both in East Germany and the post-Soviet sphere. We don't trust strangers. We don't trust each other. We still, and now it's been 30 years since the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And uh, in the post-Soviet sphere, trusting people is a skill that we need to learn as a society. That's what happens if you live in a regime which is run like this by the KGB or Stasi or whatever else, secret service and secret police. These are hard stories to tell, but I hope that they have shed some light on the matter and that it's kind of weird when people say that we should focus on being Europeans and we totally should. But it's hard to do, because even now there are many who just don't trust others. And for many of us, Westerners are still, still strangers. Not a lot of many people travel, after all. Much more than previously, but still. And that is a solution that will still need to be solved until the part of the population who lived and suffered under these regimes do pass away, and we have a society whose majority is formed by people who have never experienced it, and who may have learned from the situation there, from history books, or from the shows like mine. That's something for you to think about. Until next time. Do свидания, товарищи. 
Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.